0: joining us today for Armchair Historians. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Cannon. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. You can also find us at armchairhistorians.com. Welcome, welcome to our very first episode. And thank you for finding Armchair Historians. I'm so excited about this new podcast and especially about uh, my guest on our first episode. I do want to let you know that Belgian Rabbit Productions produces another podcast, Last Train Leaving Belgium, which is supplemental to a documentary of the same name that I am also working on. For more information, go to lasttrainleavingbelgium.com, and you can also follow on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Last Train Leaving Belgium offers a close-up look of children caught in the crossfires of World War II, specifically in Belgium. One more thing before we get started, I just want to remind you to be sure to listen through to the end of the podcast, where you're going to find a very special ongoing segment. We're calling the Kids' Corner for now. Today, my great-nephew, who is also a great-nephew, is going to be talking about the coronavirus. Let's get on with what we're here for. Cue the background music. The music is your first clue, and I'll give you one more mysterious Frenchman. Welcome to our very first episode of Armchair Historian. And today our guest is Kevin Kuharik, who is a dear friend of mine. But he's also going to give me street cred because he is actually a professional historian, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what his background is, and and then we'll start. So uh, Kevin Kuharik fundraises, manages projects, monitors compliance with historic preservation standards, and promotes history through heritage tourism. He serves as executive director of Hotel de Paris Museum, a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. He's writing history and art appreciation books about Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta, Georgia. In addition, Mr. Kuarek has contributed to the books James Novelli, A Forgotten Sculptor, Building Metropolitan Atlanta, Past, Present, and Future, Urban Green, Innovative Parks for Resurgent Cities, Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery, an Illustrated History and Guide, and Cultural Heritage Tourism, Five Steps for Success and Sustainability, Uh, Kevin Kuharik has also received Preservation Awards from Atlanta Mayors, Maynard Jackson, Bill Campbell, Shirley Franklin, and Kasim Reed. Why are you even my friend?
1: (laughs) Don't be crazy.
0: (laughs) Kevin appears on the screen before me wearing a navy suit jacket, light blue dress shirt, with the shades of blue and yellow modified paisley pocket square. Tucked neatly into his suit pocket. So when I say, why are you even, my friend? I mean it in a self-effacing, tongue-in-cheek sort of way. He's got an air of polish and class about him. But when you sit down and talk to him and really get to know him, you find out that he is... Kind and warm and inviting. Not only does Kevin have a great sense of style, he's an accomplished professional in the field of historical preservation. But somehow, for a reason unbeknownst to me, we have become good friends and partners in crime. Well, welcome Hi, to the I program. Welcome Hi. to the program, and thanks for being here.
1: Well, I appreciate the invitation. Looking forward to exploring a little bit of history with you. So uh,
0: every program starts with the lead-in question, which is, uh,
1: "What's your favorite history?" That is not an easy answer for me, and so I've I've put some thought into this. You were nice enough to give me a heads up, and I waffled for a while, and then I understood what the answer was, and it changes over time. So when I was a child. I was very interested in Colorado mining towns, and then when I left Colorado and began my career in Atlanta in historic preservation, became Victorian burial grounds, and then moving back to Colorado to a mining town, once again, it became mining towns.
0: That's interesting. I also forgot to say that uh, Kevin is uh, speaking to us through GoToMeeting app because we are in the day and age of coronavirus and we're all on stay-at-home orders from our governor in Colorado. So he is speaking to me from his home in Georgetown, Colorado, and I am not in the same room with him. I'm in my uh, sound studio also in Georgetown, Colorado. That was a lot. You really Gave a thoughtful answer to that question, which I definitely appreciate. We can't really talk about all those different histories today because we're limited in time. So I want to ask you, what is your favorite history that you're going to be talking about today?
1: Well, that would be Louis Dupuis Hotel de Paris in Georgetown, Colorado, the site that I operate.
0: And specifically, we're going to talk about something that's related to what we're going through in the world today.
1: That's right. It is topical for sure. I'd like to discuss epidemics and hotel keeping.
0: How how uh timely and perfect for the day and age and that sounded well, stupid so I'm cutting that out of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what I realized was um on on the very last tour I gave before the stay at home order I realized how much I discuss sanitary science, health and human safety on the tour. And we have for years, but it is so topical and so timely. It's really occupied my thoughts to the point where I went through Louis Dupuis' extensive library and pulled about five books off the shelves dealing with um, health and homekeeping and sanitation. And uh, I'm really trying to get into his brain a little bit. Um, as as we'll discuss, he was um, a bit of a germaphobe, in in my opinion.
0: Okay, so let's let's stop there. Let's talk about uh, Louis Dupuis and who he is. Sure. Tell us about Louis Dupuis.
1: He has many nicknames. He's known as the mysterious Frenchman. He's known as the best cook in the Colorado Territory. He has been called French Louis and the Hotel Prince. He's also known as the oddest host in America. And his probably most elevated title is the father of domestic science in America, or home economics, as we call it today. He was a Frenchman born in Alencon in Normandy in 1844. His parents were innkeepers. And at the age of 15, they wanted a better life for him than innkeeping, so they sent him to a seminary for an education, and in exchange, he had to become a priest. He did not find this to be his calling, so at 19, he orchestrated a scandal and was expelled, and that began his journey in life. He's really a great example of a young person who's undisciplined and their own worst enemy. And when he would create trouble for himself, his response was typically the geographic cure, leaving the area and going to the next area and then making a mistake there and then leaving that area. So through a very circuitous route, he finds his way to Colorado, initially works in a warehouse in Denver, selling buffalo heads and hides. And then he goes back to some journalistic roots of his and he Becomes first a uh, paperboy or newspaper carrier for the Rocky Mountain News. And then when it's discovered by the editor of the news um, that Dupuy can write, he's sent to the high country to write about silver. So this is how we get him up into our area of Breckenridge and Dillon and Silver Plume in Georgetown. Um, He was two things in the mining camps. He was a reporter and a camp cook. And so this is how he gets his reputation of being the best cook in the Colorado territory. But after a falling out with the editor of the paper, William Byers, over immigration, which another very topical subject, um, Byers was anti-immigration and publishing articles to that effect. Uh, Dupuy was an immigrant working for Byers and felt um, uncomfortable. And so that friction led him to quit the paper, become a minor, and then, um, in short order, he was nearly killed in a mining accident in which he was um, he lost sight in his, permanently in his left eye. But he saved other men's lives, and so this was really his big crossroads in life, where he could once and for all reinvent himself in the West. And he decides to go back to his roots, go back to his innkeeping roots, and embrace um, really his his personal DNA. And so he opens a little uh, first-class French restaurant and a hotel in a former bakery called Delmonico Bakery and um, eventually becomes um, world famous for his cooking his and his hosting.
0: And that becomes...
1: Hotel de Paris, the legendary Hotel de Paris,
0: the legendary Hotel de Paris. That was a lot of information that I feel like I'm going to keep going back and listening to because (laughs) you have hit on so many concise points. And you know how much I love people who can consolidate a lot of information into a few words. And there was just so much information in that. And how did you get drawn into Louis Dupuis and his story? Uh, specifically, uh, the, the one thing we're going to talk about today is his interest in sanitary science at this time.
1: I think what appeals to me most about Louis Dupuy is his resilience and his belief in himself. He didn't always have the best opportunities, but he gets to a place in his life where he is going to make a change And become disciplined and he starts to reap the rewards of that. So he was a very undisciplined young man creating trouble every step of the way for himself, not so much for others. Hmm. And
0: which I think a lot of us can relate to that. Oh,
1: absolutely. absolutely. And, um, He's really kind of a self-made man, or a renaissance person, if you will. And so I really appreciate the uh, soul searching that I think he does, especially when he has a brush with death. I think that soul searching is something that not everybody does in his or her life. But I think it's a very necessary exercise to understand oneself, take ownership of what you can get rid of things that maybe are baggage and really hone in on who you are. Another part of the story that I really like his story is that he goes back to his roots and this is where he finds his greatest success. He's interested in many things and he's thrown into many arenas, some of which he's comfortable with, some he's not. And he ends up coming back to the beginning. And that's where How many so? Of the-
0: How does he come back to the beginning?
1: When he's nearly killed in a mining accident, he is then recuperating under the care of nuns here in Georgetown, sisters of St. Joseph, St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, this was before they built a hospital in Georgetown. Um, they were taking in charity cases. So he becomes a charity case of the church. And by then, he had lost his faith in the Catholic Church. So he was groomed to be a prince. Or <laughs> 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 he was groomed. <laughs> <Aren't> we all. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> He was groomed to be a priest, but it was not his calling. So the way he gets out of this obligation to be a priest, because in trade he gets a formal education, he goes to the cathedral at at the seminary at Seize, France. And this is where he was boarding and where he was being schooled. And he decides to commit sacrilege against the sacrament. The way he does this, he's in a... Mass, they're conducting communion, he accepts the communion, wafer chews on it and spits it out onto the floor of the church. (laughs) So this is just a great example of of a young man who's creating trouble in his life And, and his response to the consequences is the geographic cure. He leaves the area and he goes to Paris and he really of course, doesn't know what his future holds. And so he goes to his roots a little bit. He he goes back to a familiar part of his life, which is um, hotels and restaurants, innkeeping. And so he gets employed by a hotel restaurant in Paris. Um, I have the feeling it might be Café de la Paix, which is still in business. It's right there by L'Opera. He was washing dishes, so he was at the bottom rung of his career, and then he decides to become an apprentice cook training to become a chef. But after about a year of formal training, and of course, remember, he brings with him the experience of cooking and innkeeping from his youth. Um, so he's got that DNA and that he's got some formal skills, but he doesn't feel it's for him. And so mm-hmm. he quits cooking after about a year and he becomes a journalist in London, England.
0: <clears throat> okay. I want to backtrack there for a second because, as you can see in the video, which, if you're just listening to the podcast, you won't see, I am wearing a beret and I'm wearing the beret in honor of Louis Dupuis, but also in honor of my uh, personal heritage, uh, French. My mother uh, grew up in France. Uh, She was half Belgian, half French. And when you were talking about Louis Dupuis going to seminary, that just it triggers so much in me because I am a former Catholic. I was raised by a French woman who was, you know, raised in the the traditions of the Catholic Church. And I eventually leave the Catholic Church. But at the same time, I do there are similarities in my story. I do come back to the Catholic Church for comfort at times, like when my father passes away and the rituals of the church. And um, there's just there's a lot for me personally that I can relate to uh, Louis' story because since we're friends and you are the executive director of the Hotel de Paris, I know a lot about him. I love that I can just walk up the street and hang out with you when you're giving tours during the day or, you know, go to all the events there. And part of it is my own, you know, connection to the heritage. And I love that about him. I love, I also love the fact that, yeah, this is your job, but it's more than just your job. And what I know from you is that, you know, there's other museums in town or museums that we talk about, and uh, there's executive directors who don't necessarily connect to the person in history whose story it is, the way that you connect to Louie. And that's one of the things that I love about listening to you talk about louis and i never get sick of it it's because you're constantly finding new things the details you're always um, learning new things you don't know everything about him and you're open to learning new things about him and you're constantly sharing uh, that information with uh, the public and the people who come to the hotel what is it that resonates with you as a person about louis story
1: His resiliency and his ability to embrace opportunity, um, in a nutshell, I would say second chances. His story is really about second chances, and that meshes so well with the Western experience of reinvention. People were just looking for opportunity. I think we're all looking for opportunity.
0: Especially up here in the mountains in Colorado and Georgetown, I see that a lot, and I I have that experience as well. I came here because I was looking for a change looking for an opportunity in my life and um, I think it's interesting that he comes here and I mean he does it all he does it all He's first he's in seminary then he's working in restaurants in France and then he comes. Oh, and then he's a journalist. You were just starting to talk about his journalism career in France. And then it's almost like he comes back and goes through all the paces again. But with the new the new perspective of his experiences and his age, and um it's it's almost like he he's constantly refining himself based on his history and what he's learned from his history.
1: He's a person who is self-critical. after he does his soul-searching, He holds himself to a standard and it's self-imposed. He expects things of himself and he becomes accountable not only for his present, but he tries to mop up his mistakes of the past. An example of that is the unfinished education um, when he leaves the seminary. When he gets to a point in his life where he has free time and expendable income because of his business success at the hotel, What he does is he invests in a large personal library, which was once described as the finest in the state, and it has survived intact and still on site at the hotel. And what he does with this, of course, it is a status symbol for him because of the immense investment in a resource like that, a personal resource like that. It's not a public library. It was a personal library. But he's using it to go back and finish his education on his own. And so this is that accountability and that structure and that discipline that he was lacking as a young man. And the best example is how he really goes back and expects something from himself. He does this in several arenas in his life. One is education. But one other arena that he leaves really for last and never really masters is his relationships with women. He gets to that in his 50s when he...
0: Does he ever get
1: married? No. he. I would describe him as a womanizer and as a playboy about town. Um,
0: Sounds like my grandfather, the Frenchman. (laughs) So is there... What else do we need to know about Louis Dupuis? You started telling us about, I think I interrupted you. You were talking about how he went to, I think you went to Paris. Where did he go to be a journalist?
1: He went to London and worked as a journalist for about a year. His assignment was reviews and translations. So he spoke four languages, his native French, Latin because of the church, German and English. And then after a year of working in England, he decided that he wanted to come to the United States. And that was about 1867. So the American Civil War was over. He wanted to come to the States. And so he returns to France. He goes to the port city of La Havre. He gets on the American vessel Harpswell. Harpswell, interestingly, was constructed in 1855 in Harpswell, Maine, and it was constructed by slaves. So it was a slave-built ship, not a slave ship, but a slave-built ship and it was for commerce and and passengers. It was carrying freight across the Atlantic between New York and France, and um, so it's transporting goods and passengers both directions, and this is how he gets to the United States and goes into journalism in New York City. But he's young, he's foreign, no one knows his name, Uh, so he would be writing articles that he sells, so freelancing, basically. But his plan falls apart, and he's suddenly broke and desperate, and he's desperate enough to plagiarize. He takes someone else's article and sells it to the editor of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, the biggest newspaper of the day. And, of course, the editor recognizes the article as someone else's. And so this is more trouble that is created and again, the response is the geographic cure, and so he moves from New York, um, um, courtesy of the U.S. Army, by enlisting in the U.S. Army. And what I haven't told you is that he uh, has two names, and this is why. Two he's names. Known as, he, yes, this is why he's known as the mysterious Frenchman. So, his given name is Adolphe Francois Girard. But he takes on the name, the alias, the assumed name, Louis Dupuy, um, due to his trouble in the army. So he enlists in the army to get out of New York. He's shipped west. He first lands in Fort Riley, Kansas. And after that, he makes his way to the Wyoming uh, Territory, to Cheyenne, Wyoming, to Fort Russell, which today you would know as Warren Air Force Base. He was a clerk in the army, so it was sort of a cushy post that he had. He would have been assigned clerk because he was literate. He was working as a journalist, so he speaks four languages, he reads, and he writes. But there were problems with the army. At that time, of course, Cheyenne being so distant from Washington, D.C., there was very little oversight. So here in the West the desertion rate was one-third, quite high. So what, this,
0: what year was that again?
1: This would be about 1869. Okay. And he ends up, Adol-Francois Girard, enlisted man, deserting the U.S. Army at Fort Russell. At that time, the punishment for desertion was execution. And so a very serious offense this is when Adol Francois Girard adopts the name Louis Dupuis, not legally, just begins calling himself that, and it's really to save his own skin. Uh, so he becomes. Do you a know man
0: why he them. picks? Do you know why he picks that particular well, name?
1: I have a theory about this name Louis Dupuis. I did some research, and I found an 18th century Louis Dupuy who was a scholar and translator. Well. Adol François Girard was a scholar and translator so I and French and so I feel that that was enough of an overlap that he saw himself in this um, other person and uh, took on that name he would refuse to talk about his past he would say something along the lines of what past is, what's past is unimportant i only look towards the future so this keeps people at bay and it's
0: that's cheesy. a very French thing, too, I'll tell yes. you, because my mother would say very similar things. She never liked to talk about the past. Mm. Not that she really had anything to hide, but it was a thing. And I'm wondering if that's, I mean, I'm just saying it's a very French thing because of my own experience. But it seems like there is a certain kind of attitude there, you know, nose to the grindstone, uh, full steam ahead kind of thing. I don't know. But of I course, be- he does. He does have something to hide. He doesn't he, want to be executed. Right. I mean, that was that was a that was a, uh, that was a drastic solution to uh, his situation. It's it's like he keeps getting making these decisions and getting in more and more hot water.
1: Right. And what's interesting, um, because I know know his secret, um, and of course we 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 share it. Um, through our tour and and interpretation of the site. So it's no secret any longer. But um, there are people who still survive to this day by doing something similar. They start, they they do a geographic cure. They start calling themselves by a different name and it tends to work for a while. Um, But I think people typically, if they live long enough, get to a point where all must be revealed There's an indication I have that Louis started to soften a little bit in his 50s and began sharing a little bit more about his past with some of his friends and confidants and family members. I think there were, I would say, there were at least three people who knew that Louis Dupuis was sort of a concocted character, a persona. Um, and that would be a relative who worked for him. The housekeeper was a French housekeeper, Sophie Galley, who was a shirt tail relative. She would have known him as Adolph and was keeping his secret in order to, um, you know, protect him. Louis so how a- do
0: we know, how do we know about this? How do we know this, this secret? Uh, is it something that you discovered? Is it something that has been known since, you know, when do we see this, uh, you know, in the books or whatever you want to call it.
1: He is. His secret identity is disclosed the day after he dies in the form of his obituary.
0: Oh. So
1: one of the three people who knew his secret past was a man by the name of Jesse Randall. Jesse Randall lived here in Georgetown, Colorado. He was the editor of the Georgetown Courier, the local newspaper at the time. And because our Louis Dupuis was a former journalist, they had things in common. So they become friends and confidants. So he shares with Jesse his secret at some point. And then Louis gets sick in August of 1900. And it gets worse instead of better. He contracts pneumonia after five weeks of bed rest. And then when he dies, Jesse prints a lengthy obituary in the Georgetown Courier the day after Louis dies. It's the first time he's called the mysterious Frenchman, and all is revealed. It is what I refer to as a warts and all account of Louis' life. It talks about the successes, but it does not shy away from the mistakes and the two identities.
0: So do you think that that was a betrayal of their friendship, or do you think that was something that Louis uh, approved of or would have approved of?
1: I really don't know.
0: Let's stop there for today with the Kevin Kuharik interview, but stay with us because we have something very special coming up. You know what a podcast is?
2: Yeah, a podcast is like something that you listen to.
0: Yeah, that's exactly. So Anne-Anne is starting a new podcast, and it's called Armchair Historian. And every episode, I'm going to have a kid's corner where I talk to a kid about usually something to do with history. Finley and I talked about a lot of things in this interview, but for this episode, I'm just going to include the part where we talked about the coronavirus and how it's affecting his life, or as Finley likes to call it, corona. Okay. So this is my mask. So do you have a um one of these?
2: Yeah. Nope. Okay. My mom's making some.
0: Do you know what this is for? Yeah. What's it for?
2: It's it's to keep the virus away. What virus? The coronavirus.
0: Oh, okay. So tell me about that. What do you know about the coronavirus?
2: I know a bunch about it. I know, I, like, it kills people sometimes. Mm-hmm. and and yeah
0: and a lot of times a lot of times it doesn't kill people too but the the reason why we got to be careful is because people who are you know vulnerable or sick can can get really sick right so that's why so what have you been doing because of it what has changed in your life
2: Uh, I'm doing online school
0: oh okay so did you used to actually go to your school to go to school before the coronavirus?
2: Yeah, I I did, but like then, then we went out of school and then we then we didn't go back to school. Yeah. So
0: what's your favorite thing about staying home?
2: That that I get to like build with my Legos and stuff.
0: Oh, do you have any of your Legos? You can show me later, and I'll put it up on my website for the podcast. Okay, because
2: it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I know. You've called me a couple times and showed me some of the cool stuff you have. Yeah. Yeah. What is a virus?
2: A virus is something, a kind of sickness that spreads. As if you, like, cough or anything, if you even, like, just cough into the air or it goes to people, and yeah.
0: And then what happens?
2: And then they get the virus, and then if they cough, then another person gets it, yeah.
0: yeah. Wow, you're really smart. You know a lot about this coronavirus stuff. Yes. So what is the thing that you, you miss the most about school?
2: Um, I get to, like... That, that I get to play outside with my friends, and and I can't play with my friends.
0: What's isolation?
2: Isolation is, is like, something where you have to, like, stay at home. Oh, do you, ha- you have your mask there? Yeah. Do you
0: know how to put it on?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put it on.
0: Did it's your mom okay?
2: make Yeah, my mom made this. I kind of don't know how to put it on because because my mom like see
0: oh yeah she has to tie it let's see put it up to the camera so I can see that's a really that's pretty fancy now I want to see the green part that's pretty fancy and what do I have on my hands
2: gloves so you don't so if you like like this is what we do sometimes at stores now. People bring in like gloves and masks to the stores and stuff so so they don't get the corona. Yeah. I I have a bunch of those.
0: Do you? So have yeah. you gone out since the um since isolation? Like do you mean like um like the store or anything like that with your mom no. or
2: no but Ooh, my mom has been going to the stores just a little bit, but but other than that, we haven't been going out. But we have been going outside a lot, but just not, like, out like. You live in a
0: really good place to go outside, don't you?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: You're surrounded by mountains, and, and who's that behind you that I see in the camera there, laying on the um, ground?
2: My dog.
0: What's your dog's name?
2: Hoppers. I like her real name is just Hops.
0: Hops is Hoppers like a a fun name that you call her sometimes. Him, I always get confused. Hops is a boy, right?
2: Yeah. No, silly. He's a girl. Oh, God, Aunt Anne just forgets. You probably have to like write it down to remember. <sighs>
0: You know, it's what happens when you get older, is it's hard to remember stuff. Yeah. I know. To remember. What else has been on your mind about this whole thing? Do you have any questions for me?
2: Uh, not really. I just, oh, okay.
0: yeah. Okay. I like your bow tie. Thanks. You look great. You look real snazzy. It's nice to have something to get dressed up for, isn't it? Yeah. What you got there? You got another mask?
2: Yeah, two. I have two masks.
0: Those are cool. Your Your mom's really talented, isn't she?
2: Yeah.
0: How are your mom and dad doing through this whole thing?
2: Good, but yeah, kind of stressed.
0: Yeah, it's stressful. It's stressful for a lot of people yeah it's kind of scary sometimes
2: because I like I really want to see my friends again but like like I want to see my friends like like in real life not like on on video because because the thing that when I have this meeting at school this is something that like I it annoys me um that um like computers and stuff that the kids are on like it. It sounds like like it sounds like like it's just like people screaming. It like spins like, my brain around
0: <laughs>
2: in circles.
0: Oh, I know that sounds frustrating.
2: It's weird. It sounds like so weird.
0: Sometimes loud. I notice because I've been doing a lot of video chatting with people. And one of the things that I notice is that sometimes I can't understand what somebody's saying, and it sounds like they're talking underwater. Like Like,
2: That's the same exact thing that happens at video school.
0: Video school. Yeah, Yeah, that's a new thing, huh? Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about?
2: Not really.
0: Okay. Well, you've been really informative. I'm sure that our audience is really going to love um, hearing about your thoughts on things.
2: Do you have any more questions or thoughts? Um, well, I
0: don't know. I'm t- trying to think. I mean, if you think of something else, we can schedule another time to talk. Uh, what grade are you in, Finley?
2: Um, I'm in kindergarten. And I'm six years old.
0: What's your favorite color? Turquoise. Turquoise. Did you see what I'm wearing? I'm wearing turquoise today.
2: Yeah. I'm wearing a turquoise necklace and turquoise um, earrings.
0: I am. And I have turquoise in my dress. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell me about yourself that I can put in your bio on the podcast page that you want people to know?
2: This is something another thing about the corona that that you all say safe and you Wash your hands. And there you have
0: it, kid wisdom. You know, maybe that's what I'll call this segment instead of kids corner. Let me know what you guys think. You can reach out to me on social media, DM me through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Should I call the children's segment Children's Corner or kid wisdom? Or do you have a better, more catchy title for our kids segment? Let us know. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to join us next week for part two of the Kevin Kuharik Louis Dupuis interview where we discuss, among other things, how Louis incorporated the science of sanitary practices into the day-to-day running of Hotel de Paris, ways in which he got it right, and some questionable practices.